Hey gang, welcome to episode 216 of the No Persinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from the No Pro studio in Los Angeles. Uh, this week on the show, we've got Eric Gradman, the chief technical officer and mad inventor over at 2-Bit Circus, uh, the headquarters of which and uh, the first big top of which you can find in the arts district of downtown Los Angeles. We're going to be talking about um, the tech side of immersive uh, and specifically uh, this is all inspired by 2-Bit's latest game, Dr. Botcher's Minute Medical School, which we got to beta test and was an absolute joy. So, um, you know, this is the first time we've gotten to have Eric on the show solo. Uh, we've had him uh, together with Brent Bushnell, who is uh, the, the other founder of 2-Bit Circus, and we've had Brent on the show. And this is us digging down into the, the tech side. Um, this conversation that we had, it got me thinking uh, in in some very specific ways, of which I will jump into at some other time, because right now I got to pack. Uh, I'm about to head out uh, for uh, the Vancouver International Film Festival, where uh, VIFF Immersed is happening this weekend. I am moderating a panel, uh, the panel with the jury, because there is a competition going on, and that's going to be spectacular. Our friend Ricky Briganti is given a keynote at the start of the day. Uh, Ricky just dropped a column on NoPro, uh, which was in in part a response to the column that I did the week before, so you can find that still on the website. Uh, there's going to be a bunch. In fact, I'm recording this Wednesday night. We will drop the episode Friday, so I don't know what's on the website right now. But what I can tell you is that we started a new feature this week, uh, Picks of the Week, because everyone's always asking, hey, what should I go see? Um, and uh, I wanted to be able to answer that in a very succinct way. In fact, in some ways, that's why the newsletters exist, but... There's so much content now that I know that people want a little more personal recommendation, but I haven't seen everything, but our team has and our Patreon backers have. Uh, so things that we've seen and recommend and also things that we're excited about. So that's going to come out every Wednesday from now on. That is on the website. It's free to all. It'll stay up during the week so you can help uh, shape and guide your decisions uh, in terms of where to put your effort. And uh, if you want to be one of the people contributing to it, that is the purview of our Patreon backers. Uh, we are uh, having a good month on Patreon. Uh, next month, we're going to go even harder because uh, we need to. Um, and uh, yeah, we're up to, um, golly, we're up to 275. Uh, golly, <laughs> I'm from the 1950s. Gosh, Mr. Nelson, why do we get this whole crowdfunding thing? It's just so kooky. Um, <laughs> we are up to 275 backers on the Patreon uh, and over $1,500. Of course, as we all know, we need more. Um is, uh, the only thing that we can trust, the only thing we can trust in this world is your support. Um, check this stuff out. Uh, also over the website, we've got uh, discount codes for Alt-Delete, uh, which are uh, for the friends and family weekend that's going around. That's here in Los Angeles. Uh, there's a uh, discount code going around for House of Creep for this weekend, also in LA. 50% uh, off on House of Creep, uh, 10 bucks off on Delusion. You can find uh, the House of Creep listing over in uh, in Everything Immersive. I'm trying to look it up for you 
right as we talk, because uh, you know me, I go with the stream of consciousness. There we go. Art House, A-R-T-H-A-U-S, for 50% off tickets this weekend only, 926 through 929 to House of Creep. And for Alt-Delete, uh, um, I'll just tell you, it's Go No Pro is the $10 off uh, ticket for alt delete on the preview weekends and don't forget that we're having a special talkback event on october night 9th including free game night at the dragon and meeple over there in downtown los angeles all right um that's the basic stuff uh let's also tell you who jumped on the bandwagon this time i'm looking at uh all the browser tabs so here we go megan elliott clifton fells carly hagedorn uh all jumped on the bandwagon this time and Andrew Hefner increased his pledge. Thank you so much. Um, we always appreciate when people do that, and I try and give a shout out. So uh, we're chucking along, chugging along, chucking along. No, we're chugging along. Uh, and yeah, if you want to become one of those backers, Patreon.com/slash No Persinium. Oh, and uh, here's another thing: we did a bonus episode of the podcast where Anthony, uh, who is on Survivor Fiji, if you don't know, uh, and David Spira of Room Escape Artist, talked to. P.G. Law, who has been on two seasons of Survivor, about uh, Survivor, about being on Survivor, and about puzzles, and about escape games, and how kind of Survivor, as David put it, is the ultimate immersive experience. So check your feed for that. All right. I gotta get packing, so let me just point out the thing we always point out, which are the sustaining backers of No Persinium are Mark Balthazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, and Samuel Mustry. Thank you all, gentlemen, for keeping this going. I've set up the interview. Uh, this is recorded at 2-Bit Circus itself. And here we go. Eric, we're here inside Club 01, which uh, you mentioned is your favorite room in the house here at 2-Bit Circus. And... Um, well, why don't we start here? Uh, sure. Where, where, where are we? What's going on? And, and what's Tubit? Well, let's start with what Tubit is. We call it a micro amusement park. It's tiny by theme park standards. It's only 38,000 square feet of fun. Um, so this is not football fields worth of entertainment. Maybe only one football field worth of entertainment. Everything we do here is highly interactive. So we have some arcade games, but that's not the focus of this place. Focus of this place is uh, maybe twofold. Getting people connected to one another. Highly multiplayer, uh, uh, interesting connections established between people playing games together. And story-based stuff. We really want to give people the experience of a beginning, a middle, and an end to their night. And so we have what we call story rooms. Most people would probably recognize them as escape rooms. But uh, as we'll talk about a little later, we have a slightly different take on them. Uh, we're standing here in, uh, in Club Zero One, which is our interactive game show theater. This is a 100-seat theater. There are touchscreens at every single table, and we put a host up on stage, we put butts in seats, and we're able to run games where 100 people can participate all at once. We'll run a trivia night in here. We have wine-tasting game. We have a whiskey-tasting game. We have a, a room-scale escape room, and the idea is the, the, the experience is very scripted, and so the host is, has a confidence monitor up there and is going through uh, a, a prepared script. But at the same time, they have to improv because the audience is supplying their own input. They're being asked to 
uh, Mad Libs style create a wine label or they're answering questions correctly or incorrectly, uh, we encourage the host to, to mess with the audience, right? This should be a combination of improv comedy, interactive video gaming, and just good old-fashioned showmanship. Someone described to me that sort of your role here at 2-Bit, uh, and, and part of your title is, is Mad Inventor, um, as sort of being responsible for the, the brains and the nervous system of the thing, because the, the, there's a lot of custom going on in the park a lot of a lot of custom design running the the whole the whole enchilada here sure because because you've got you've got stuff wired up left and right and you've got you know you've got these systems in here or when you make the story rooms like dr botchers which is minute minute medical school which is your latest one uh you're you're creating things kind of whole cloth Mm -hmm. so i wonder if you could talk a little bit about your approach to building uh tech driven games from the ground up sure I think if I were to try and sum up my contribution, my biggest contribution here, it's show control, interactive show control. And because the kinds of shows we create here, from Club Zero One, where we are right now, these immersive game shows, to Dr. Botcher's Minute Medical School, or something like a story room, or an immersive theater production, all of these have elements of show control that any theater tech would recognize from a stage production, but they also have elements of video games where, you know, People can change their experience by participating. Uh, People work together. People work individually. Uh, They may choose one path. They may choose another path. And the story as a whole, the experience as a whole, has to remain remain cohesive no matter what anybody does. Everyone's still got to have a good time. There's a lot of novel challenges in developing experiences that have those characteristics. And so... I've created a platform here called Walnut, and Walnut is kind of a mashup of a lot of different show control systems, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of software that we wrote here, a lot of Python servers talking to lots of devices running on, on tablets and interactive touchscreens. Uh, it's it's a, a huge piece of software um, that includes traditional show control software as well, and it's designed to make it really, really easy for us to spin up new interactive shows. And the, you know, the, the magic of this platform that we've developed here is that the same software runs this room, Club Zero One, as runs Dr. Botcher. Both are interactive show control challenges. And both, you know, we're solving the same problems in both cases. And, and so we're talking about show control that can be driven by, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, driven by something like the host of a game show here in Club Zero One, but also by the the... The, the players sure. and, and their fi- their success or fail states or their or their uh, maybe fail states wrong term maybe their outcome states in a story room like Dr. Botcher's so that it almost doesn't matter am I right here it doesn't matter that it it, it doesn't have to be you know the the stage manager or the docent doing it yeah I, I actually want to take a slightly different perspective on on how this is designed this is designed for developer and producer creativity and freedom. Mm. This was a a show control system to allow creative people to be maximally creative when designing their shows. And as as a video game, as in part a video game, these experiences need to be coded. You know, a software developer needs to write that software. As shows, they need to be sequenced. Someone needs to be able to, you know, concatenate video and audio and different show control you know, traditional show control things. And you have creative people who are good at both of those things, right? You have people who are good at putting together shows and good at the drama. 
and you have people who are good at creating good video games. And seldom, I won't say exclusively, but seldom are those the same people. So this show control system, Walnut, is designed to give those creative people, whatever their skill set may be, the ability to bring that show to life quickly. Now, a byproduct of an interactive show created with Walnut is that you know, the players get to, in some sense, choose their own adventure, and the operators are, are easily able to sort of slip into the show and, and tweak some parameters and change someone's, someone's experience, sort of the, the, the god in the machine, if you will. Um, but first and foremost, this thing is designed for rapid prototyping. It's designed for developer and producer comfort. How did you get on, and, and I want to I I pull back a little farther, because uh, I've known Eric for some number of years, about five years now, I think, a little ar around there. Because um, I first met you, we did, there was this little unconference that we pulled in the middle of Hollywood uh, with the folks over at, I think at the time they were calling it Schkopf, uh, was the was what they had just renamed their their series of buildings, it, which is now a veterinarian hospital, by <laughs> the way, right? Because like all of Theater Row got like turned into everything but theaters. Yeah. Like literally, I think it was like the week that it got officially dubbed Theater Row by the city of LA was the <laughs> week that the theaters started to be gentrified oh, no. out, right? Um, why is this called Theater Row, Daddy? Well, once upon a time, a bunch of freaks. Um, but we you know this used to be called the arts district, but now it's just us fools making crazy games. So and condos. <laughs> so uh, and I guess whatever the old Ford factory is being turned into, like the WB's music center or something totally. like that, right? Uh, well, at, le at least if there's recording studios going, on, at least that'll be the arts district. There'll be arts in the arts district. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, that's the long way of getting around. Known you for a while, and uh, we met you at, at, at that thing. And that was back when, when two was doing a lot of, uh, contract and client work. Like uh, probably like the park was probably like a dream that was, that was being, you know, moved towards, but things weren't calcifying yet. So how do, how, what's your, what's your arc here? How do you wind up being, you know, the mad scientist of a, of a micro amusement park? Well, so I'll actually go back really far and say that, you know, in a previous career arc, I was a roboticist. And I worked uh, for a government contractor, uh, building crazy prototypes for the military, building robots that could defuse bombs, and uh, building robots that could dismantle cars with teleoperated uh, uh, robot arms. Uh, and it was a very fun job. My role there was essentially the same as my role here, show control, because making a robot that can accomplish its task and also make for a great demo, you know, requires getting a whole bunch of different pieces, none of which were meant to operate together, to operate together in, in harmony, right? And a lot of the, I think a lot of the, the design philosophy that went into building what I consider to be a world-class show control system for interactive systems was born out of building robots. Robots have a lot of the same problems as shows. I, I sometimes think of this place as being a, one big robot that we get to walk inside of. Hmm. Getting all the pieces to mesh together, all these complex pieces, be they uh, the individual sensors and mechatronics of uh, a robot bartender or a Dr. Botcher's Minute Medical a story room, or getting the sort of the larger cogs of the entire park to work together. I'll talk to you about our metagame later. Our metagame is our attempt to to synchronize all the different pieces of this park so people can have a cohesive scavenger hunt style adventure moving through. All these problems are the same as, as in robotics. You're trying to get this big complicated organism, if you will, to behave, right? 
and uh, I think I can I can definitely draw a through line uh, yeah. from that. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the word behave there because there's both like you want it to get it to do what you want it to do, but also you want to get it to do at all. You want it to be able to have behaviors, um, and that's definitely something you're. you're you're building from the ground up as you take, you know, a, a warehouse-ish space and turn it into a place where people have fun. I, I think the biggest difference is actually the people, right? The mm. people are the magical ingredient that make these challenges so much different from the challenges of robotics, right? Here, we have an indeterminate number of people coming through the door. They, they may be drunk, they may be sober, they may be young, they may be old, they may be here to have a good time, they may be here to vandalize the place. We don't know, right? <laughs> and what we have to do is we have to, we, have to, we have to build systems that can, can sort of flex with our guests and, and accommodate their whims and accommodate the whims of the host up on stage and sort of, whereas before I might have made a study of you know, the, the, the metallurgical proce- uh, properties of the metals that went into the robot so I understand how those things flex. Now I make a study of behavioral economics. Now I try and understand how people behave in groups, how people behave when you ask them to do stuff. Are they going to read instructions? What if they don't? How do we make sure that under any of these circumstances we're resilient? And even if they absolutely positively are either so drunk or illiterate or don't speak and read English? Like, how can we make sure that people are going to have a good time no matter what, even if they're just there to mess stuff up? Can I swear? Sure, you can fucking swear. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and then you, you said fuck yeah, but you, I know you wanted to say fuck stuff up. So um, let's talk about fucking things up. Uh, let's talk about Dr. Potchers. Let's do it. Um, give us give us the, give us the, the, the high-level pitch on Dr. Botchers here. So or what it was whatever it was you told me when you like shanghaied me uh, as I was on my way to to Kara's going away. Well, I I mean to be perfectly clear, the the way I shanghaied you was I went upstairs to your party where you guys were having a good time and clearly was, a couple drinks in. It was, it was Kara's party. And Kara, I, I, Kara's had, party. I hadn't I don't think I I, I have any, no, I hadn't had any drinks yet. So I was sober that night. What yeah. what I said <laughs> what I said specifically was I'm going to regret this. I'm going to show you something that isn't ready. <laughs> Want to play? <laughs> yeah, because we, we happen to have like multiple no pro reviewers. We had Kara, whose party it was, who's done so many escape rooms. And then we had like folks like Tommy Haunton, who designs this stuff for a living. Uh, and I couldn't have asked for a better group of people to come in the day before we launched <laughs> yeah. to tell me what was right <laughs> and wrong. It was an excellent visit. So, but what is, so what is Dr. Botchers? So Dr. Botchers is, is the culmination of uh, uh, many years now of developing what we call story rooms. So I want to start with the difference between a story room and an escape room. Absolutely. I think a lot of people would probably want to know that. So escape rooms to me have a, you know, they, they have a, a common flavor. We're going to put you in a room, we're going to lock the door, and we're going to try and get you to escape as quickly as you can, right? There's a couple problems with that. First of all, it's hard to vary things in that theme. Uh, you can escape from a bank. You can escape from the wizard's castle. There's only a limited number of places you can escape from. Often, escape rooms are all horror-based. That's not 100% true, but it, the format kind of encourages people to move in that direction. Um, also, there's logistical issues, right? If you guys are done in 20 minutes and I budgeted 40, then what am I doing with that extra 20 minutes? Here, I want to be able to pipeline people in and out of these rooms as quickly as possible. 
so from a from a logistical and story perspective, you know, that's that's one way of looking at the difference between a story room and an escape room. Um, I like our story. I, I, I like to say that our story rooms are like being are like living an episode of a television show. Mm. Right. You walk in the door, the opening credits roll. You're introduced to the scenario. A challenge is put before you. You solve it. That was easy. That was good. You know, there's some drama. You know, the stakes rise, the stakes lower, the drama rises and lowers. And by the time you get to the end, it tends to be about the same length as a TV show, you feel like you've been part of a story. At no time have you felt like you were rushed to escape, right? We don't want people to rush out of these rooms. We want them to enjoy every last bit of comedy and drama and fun that we baked into this thing, mm. right? And you know, there's kind of a funny accident. Well, tell you what, why don't I tell you what Dr. Botcher's is first, and then yeah. I'll tell you a little bit more about how I think this really exemplifies this, this format. Um, about eight months ago, seven months ago, I'm watching TV with my wife. We're watching some lame medical drama. If I dredged my memory, I could probably tell you what it was. Medical dramas are all basically the same, you know. The patient goes into the operating room with some minor injury. They discover some huge problem, blah, 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 blah. By the end of the episode, the patient is coding. Everybody's running into the operating room trying to revive the patient. And all I could think to myself was, man, that looks like a fun job <laughs> as long as you're acting, right? Yeah. I wouldn't want to do this in real yeah. life, yeah, man, yeah. But, but it's got to be so much fun to be an actor on one of these shows. Can we recreate that? Can we give visitors to 2-Bit Circus the experience of being a doctor in a life-threatening emergency. So I started sketching. What are the most important parts of an operating room? Obviously the body, right? In the middle of this room, there needs to be a body on a table and you gotta perform surgery on this guy. Now everyone's played Operation, right? It's a, uh, the, the classic board game. Everyone understands how this is played. We're gonna kinda work with that mechanic. What else is in an operating room? Well, you have to deliver drugs to the patient. Well, let's put a pharmacy on the wall. Let's give our, uh, let's give our, our doctors-to-be the opportunity to deliver the right drug at the right time. We've got a microscope. We can look into the patient's bloodstream. Then there are various other tools that people associate with an operating room. There's blood pressure stuff, and there's uh, EKGs. How much of this stuff can we cram into this room and, and, and make a story out of it? And I just started drawing pictures of this. And we started prototyping. And... Oh man, I would say about half the stuff we prototyped made it into this room. What, what resulted from this long process of experimentation and play is Dr. Botcher's Minute Medical School. You and five friends are medical students, and you're introduced to Dr. Botcher, who's a puppet. You're going to be taught medicine by a puppet. You're going to walk into the operating room, uh, and you've got to do everything you can to, to, to make this patient safe, to keep this patient alive. And believe me, shit's going to go wrong. Oh boy, is shit gonna go wrong. And it's, you know, it's got that same arc, right? You know the patient's gonna tr try and die on you in the yeah, end. Yeah, you yeah. know it's going to happen. And I'm not revealing anything by telling you, by the end of this thing, you are gonna be trying desperately to keep this guy alive. Oh yeah. Whether you want to or not. <laughs> and on the way- I don't see any reason not to keep him alive, like. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> but there's an, arc, there's an arc to it. And because fundamentally this is based in the same world as a medical drama, people know what's gonna happen, right? They know what's gonna happen, that gives people comfort, right? They're in a scenario that they understand. On the way though, that's where we have all the fun, 
right? That's where we get to introduce game mechanics. That's where we get to shuffle people from station to station, giving them a reason to try every possible uh, mechanic in the room. Work together, sometimes work individually. It's fun as hell. Yeah, I'm so proud of this one. This it's just I like I love playing it still. Yeah. And that never happens for the game maker, yeah. you know? Well, and there's something, I mean, what's what's really mar- remarkable to me about it uh, and and kind of a distillation of I think what you guys have been chasing with the story room is is the replayability. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I've I've gone through once. I want to go through again at some point. Uh, I, I, but I want to like bring different people to yeah. play because I it's kind of like there's and there's there's starting to be this move in in the escape game, you know, owner community, like we've there's a fantastic room down in Anaheim, uh, the Psych Ward, which has a bunch of puzzles, but it's a it's a PvP game. Mm-hmm. So you've got you've got the players operating against each other, and there's there's some mechanics there around you know, holding a secret and like lying or not lying, and 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 it's possible to replay that one because even if you solve the puzzles or if you get a lot of the same puzzles in it, one, there's like more puzzles in the room that are ever going to show up in any given turn of it, but also that part of it where you are competing against the other players, that's the thing. That's the replayability. That's the thing and makes it, that's where the win condition is. I play lots of video games and having played a video game has never been a barrier for me to playing it again. Yeah. Right? And, And here, I'll raise you one, right? Dr. Botchers has a window, and anybody who wants to watch can walk up to that window and watch all the other surgeons-to-be performing surgery on our dummy, right? What escape room lets a future audience look in the room and see what's going to happen? Fine with us, right? So replayability in this room is super high, super high. Yeah. Um, you, were, you said that there was... I think you hinted that there was a like an accident that happened at some point. Not you like, mean to like, Ken? Well, our, our well, dummy. Well, to Ken, the dummy. Yeah, <laughs> but like no, you were saying like there was some. There was like some, before we got into like the story about watching uh, the, the television show. You said some kind of said like there was like a a moment. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm yeah, I'm maybe trying, my not, brains. Maybe my brains. Sure. My blood sugar yeah. is low, yeah, and we already have like we the got triple. some candy. If you want some candy, oh no, I'm off the sugar yeah. right now. Oh so boy, like well, it's that's gotta, why your blood sugar is low. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. There's a there's a taco place around the corner that I'm going to go to afterwards. I think you probably know which one I'm talking about. Um, so, so and this is not the first of the story rooms. Nope. So you guys, you guys have a few of them here at the, yeah. at the park. How did how did the road? When did you guys get on this train here? You know, Brett and I like to say that we we were creating uh, escape rooms at least before the term had even been invented. I remember one of our first projects together, probably about ten years ago, was creating some hybrid between a, a an escape room and a scavenger hunt in the brewery arts complex where we used to have our shop. And we did not know there was no model for what we were creating, but we knew that sending people in groups out into the world to solve puzzles, bring them back, play some game together, learn some more information was kind of a winning, a winning concept. We didn't know what to call it. We called it a scavenger hunt at the time, but it, it wasn't really a scavenger hunt because it was brought to life with, uh, with puzzles, which isn't a, a guaranteed ingredient for scavenger hunts. And it also was brought together with, you know, was brought to life with, with technology because that's what we were developing at the time you know, interactive game systems that were unusual in some way, some of which have made it into the park, some, you know, like the giant ball uh, video game. Like that was, that was part of our, our escape room at the time. You know, you would walk up to this giant four-foot diameter ball, and it was, a, uh, it was essentially a, a trackball that 
allowed you to scrub through a giant gigapixel image mm. and you had to uncover clues in this image and then use them to solve the next puzzle. Um, and you know, eventually the format of escape rooms became clear and I would say a little ossified. Um, but I think, I think we've always held out hope that the, well, we've held out more than hope. Like we've continued to, to build the kind of interactions that could just as easily send you to the other side of a building or the other side of a city than to send you to the other side of a room to find a combination lock. Um, what's the... Oh, but can I tell you oh, about yeah, another yeah. story room? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's where we started. And yeah, I, exactly. I, I started, over the door. I started yeah. fucking philosophizing there. <laughs> All right, so, so let's back up. So, let's the show. Where, so, um, the show. Yeah, where do we go from there? We, we built several, uh, several escape rooms over the years. We've built quite a few of them, actually. Um, we built, oh, God, what was this? Cosmic Contagion. Cosmic mm. Contagion was a four-room uh, story. It was a story-based experience. Uh, I would say it was a little bit more like an escape room than what we're doing now, but uh, you, you went through a couple of rooms. One was connecting all these devices to one another. One was, you know, uncovering the secrets of the alien artifact. And in the last room, I'm skipping a room, whatever. In the last room, uh, you and your team basically sit in, uh, in the spaceship and pilot it to go rescue one of either the missing scientist or the alien he was investigating. It's all very mysterious. Mm. Um, I think I saw like the uh, the alpha version of that. Oh, really? Oh, awesome. I remember there being a thing set up in the back of um, of, of the original HQ, and there was like a small room, mm -hmm. and it sort of had four <gasps> quadrants to oh, it. Oh, yes. Oh, you saw a, a very alpha version of very, that. Very, very alpha. Absolutely. Because there was a place where someone was like, having, someone had to spend the entire time like learning <laughs> how to operate the, the Land Rover game. Yeah. And that was like, there was like, okay, you're learning the Land Rover game. And there was like, there was like a... There was like a alien artifact yep. puzzle, and then there was like, all right, search the room, and kind of had a little bit of a X Files vibe, and there were video, there was there was video content that would pop up that would kind of like orient us to the story. I'll tell you, one of the advantages of having done this now for like ten years is we have learned what not to do. <laughs> <laughs> we have learned the, the the sorts of things. Some of that, that stuff worked well, and others of it just like, oh, just like oh did man. not. Work. We made some big fat mistakes on that one. We've made big fat mistakes on every single one of them. What am I talking about? But uh, yeah, we've had a lot of time to learn from them. Um, that last room, though, of, of the, the longer experience, where, yeah. you're, where you're sort of sitting in the, in the, the spaceship and you're piloting it. Yeah, I right? saw a chair in a room at the yep. midway at one point. I was like, what's this? Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, it's, it's the cosmic contagion thing. And I'm like, oh, wow, this has evolved. And then the next... So you'll tell yeah, it was, it was, so yeah. it was haptics, right? So you had yeah. one person who was the pilot and is sitting in this chair and, and navigating the ship. I think it was a ship. It was a rover, actually, navigating the rover over the landscape. And you had somebody who was looking at the map and figuring out where the person was, where we were all supposed to go. One person whose sole job was to hit buttons when they lit up because otherwise the communications gear would start to fritz and static would appear on people's screens, right? That was the room that everybody loved. Oh my God, everybody loved that room. They wanted to come back and just do that room. And so uh, one of the rooms we have here, Space Squad in Space, is basically the, uh, the descendant of that room. Yeah. An entire room, which is just the bridge of a starship. Yeah. Right? And we invite people onto the bridge. We say, well, first step, learn how to power this thing on, take it into space, and let's get saving. You know? And uh, that's what people do. Every bridge console is a fully operational console. The buttons do stuff. The screens 
change depending on what part of the show you're in. There's a there's a game console in the middle, basically the the weapon system where people are gathering together and collaborating. Six trackballs. It's a great mix of physical stuff, right? Like we want people to use their bodies in these rooms. There's a turbine. The ship's engine needs to be powered. Someone has to use the arm cycle and keep the batteries charged in the ship, right? So there's an element of physicality. Ship, that. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Human powered. Um, and then there's there's uh, a little bit of puzzle solving, right? We try and keep the puzzle solving to a minimum. Actually, I think that's a, an important characteristic of what we build. Um, helps with replayability, right? Once you've learned what the puzzle is. Why bother doing it again, right? Yeah, that's actually one of the things that's, that's always fascinated me about the escape game format. And I'm starting to think about all this field more as, I mean, I mean, location-based entertainment is a long-standing term, uh, and it's an industry term for all kinds of things. But I'm starting to think about that class, uh, all this stuff more as functions of that class, particularly around things like the story rooms, things like the psych ward, uh, just these attempts to create, you know, attractions that it's not just the value for the room owner to have something that, oh, well, you know, I can have these guests come back and have fun again. It's valuable for people who are into this stuff to be able to not just, oh, if, if their friends say, oh, like, I want to go to go to a good escape room, you mm -hmm. go like, oh, yeah, you know, go go check out this one or go check out that one. Uh, but but I can't join you. But I can't join because you because I've done it. I can't go. And, 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 and by the way, go. maybe you want to go play with your friends. I want to point out that even though I've been I've been taking I've been taking shots at escape rooms. I love escape rooms. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And, no, that, and, and one of my greatest disappointments is that I can only play the ones I love once. once. Yeah. No. And that's and that's why I like seeing. It's like I don't want escape rooms to go away at all because there is something amazing about that. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's. I mean, my my favorite Daffy Duck cartoon remains the one where like the end gag is like I can only do it once, um, and and there is something about the magic of I have solved it. Mm -hmm. Right? It's like it's like a great it, like mm -hmm. a like a great crossword or like deciphering a riddle and you're like oh i got it now and it's yep. forever with you and that's something precious but yeah that sense of like i would wish i could play x with you like it's like things where it's like i wish i could take my friends back to safe mm -hmm. to stash house yeah right like i wish i could take my friends back to stash house and play with them i know Tommy, that I, it's awesome i know that i could <laughs> i know that i could sit on the bed and watch them Right. You know, like I could hang out there and yep. watch people play, but it's it's not right. the same thing as, you know, as as playing it. So as we sit around and philosophize about how to make these things right, we try and think about other ways that we can give people that same sense of accomplishment, because that sense of accomplishment when you solve the puzzle is very satisfying. You feel it in your gut like, yes, oh, I yeah. figured it out. And, you know, a good escape room, a good puzzle of any kind gives you that feedback. It gives you that that endorphin rush when you, not only have you just solved it, but you know you've solved it yeah. because something happens. You feel so damn clever. But the, the, thing about, uh, the thing about interactive technology, the thing about you know, all the PLCs and electronics and software that we use is that we can deliver that same endorphin rush the way video game designers do, right? Mm. The thing that keeps you coming back and playing your favorite video games again is not solving a puzzle. It's accomplishment. It's learning something and knowing that you've learned it so well that you've sort of gotten to the next level, right? And so I think 
one thing that really differentiates the things that we build, the, the story rooms in particular that we build, is they use the video game model of giving people that sense of accomplishment. And that's what gets people coming back again. That, that's what makes it infinitely replayable. Another thing that we can do is make them episodic. These are software products, right? Mm -hmm. These are software products inside beautiful hardware with you know, physical, physical controls. But at the end of the day, it's a show-controlled system that it's just bits on a disk, right? And you can walk into Space Squad another day and have a completely different episode, completely different content. That's one of the beautiful things that software lets you do. Yeah. It's, it's funny because it means you've built... I mean, there, there is that movement in indie games in particular of custom controllers and for, for games. And I've played all kinds of weird games that indicate that have a custom built controller and yeah. those are often those are often things that are the absolute most fun and there's there's almost like no commercial viability to them but in a real way what you've done here is you've created a space for that exact kind of thing i mean there are games out here like the like the the train mm -hmm. yard thing yep. with yep, like yep. the the, the Ra uh, rail race yeah yeah uh that's a custom controller um, there's there's all kinds of custom controllers. Well, look, here. here's the thing. Why, I mean, talking about two-bit circus generally, why the hell would anybody leave their house to play video games that they could play at home? Yeah. There's only two reasons, right? One, you you can't do this in your own home, right? Because it uses something that you can't reasonably put there. And two, because people are inherently social and they want to be with others and they want to meet other people. And I think the the custom controls, just to focus on that for a second, that really enables both of those things. I mean, VR. Most people don't have VR in their homes. They could, but they don't have to because they can come to a place like this and they can they can experience that. No one is going to have a rail race controller. Nobody's yes. going to have a fully functional operating room in their house. Yeah. They can come out here and they can do that. And because these these custom controls because these these rooms and these games are inherently physical, they break down to some degree people's uh, inhibitions about being silly in public. Right. Mm. We have a game out there. Uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, t -t 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 I can't remember at the moment, but it uses four giant balls. Right. Uh, and they're just they're just trackballs. Yeah. Right. The first version of these trackballs, by the way, wa it was it was a, a mouse spring loaded against the bottom of a rolling ball. Right. All it is is a navigation system for a computer. It's just like your mouse. You can play this game with the mouse. But here, because these these balls are four feet in diameter. You have to use your entire body. You take a simple game, you put a weird controller on it, you tell people they have to use their entire bodies to play it, and it becomes incredibly fun. We have a giant keyboard out there. That keyboard is five feet wide. Take a basic typing game and tell people they have to play it together. And even if those people don't know one another, by the end, they're going to be friends. They're going to be laughing about a shared experience. Something about physical controls, about, you know, about the weirdness of it all connects them. What keeps you going? What keeps you, because you're, you're, you're programming all this stuff, you're developing games. What's the thing at the end of the day that keeps you hooked on all this? I think... I think I see a future where the boundaries between games and theater just keep breaking down, right? I think, I think the, the, the image I've always ha had in my head of, of sort of the perfect immersive theater production is one that's just overlaid over my entire life, 
uh, the, you know, Michael Douglas, the game, you know, right. that sort of thing where anywhere you go, uh, the world is a puzzle. The world is a game. And there's real practical considerations on how you could get to a world like that. You know, augmented reality is, is one of the possible paths to get us there, but it's not the only path to get, it, get us there. Something like a, a, a phone-based, like a Pokemon Go sort of thing, where you're layering a new map on the world with creatures that you have to, you have to get. Um, you know, one of Brent's and my first startups was essentially that, uh, GPS-based gaming. Kind of the same idea, sending people around the world to capture these crystals and put them together to create larger, larger objects and spaceships. Um, I see what we're doing in story rooms and in Club Zero One as creating an interactive layer for the world, show controlling your real life. When we can break video games, all the magic and interactivity of video games, when we can break that out from behind glass and kind of put it out in the world that we all inhabit, um, that's going to be awesome. Now, maybe that's still going to be time constrained. Maybe you're still showing up for a show. You know, I've bought a ticket to Dr. Botcher. I'm going to play for 20 minutes. I'm, I've gone to this immersive theater production. I'm going to be in the audience for an hour, right? But, but over time, all those boundaries are going to start to break down, right? And it's no longer going to be time bounded. And your experience of participating in this crazy made up world that creative people have put together for you, that experience will sort of transcend any time boundary and that world will follow you onto Facebook. It'll follow you home to your house. And I think we're, we're kind of driving toward that. And for me, as a big fucking nerd, that's going to require cool tools that let creative people design those worlds. Because it's one thing to sort of philosophize about what those games might feel like. Right. I want it to feel like Michael Douglas is the game. But I want to talk about the spreadsheets that drive that. You know? yeah. I want to talk about the, the software tools that actually implement those. And this is my opportunity to build that. Yeah. How, how do the location markers uh, you know, in the eye beacons, talk to the software that's running on someone's phone passively that so that something gets triggered. It's like when you go to Galaxy's Edge and yeah. like you're interacting with the data pad or like it knows, like it, yeah. you walk in and it knows that you've, you've been there before. And so that triggers the video that says, oh, I've got some new, looks like I've got some new uh, pilots and some returning people. Mm -hmm. And you're like, and the first time that happens to you, you, you're sh you go into shock a little bit because you're like, oh my God, it, it remembered me, right? right? Like it, it, the world gets in, enchanted. And then, you know, we saw that when they b broke the wands out at, uh, at Harry, uh, Potter. Harry Potter yeah. for Universal, right? And, and sort of, you know, made that something like you buy that feature. And now it's just in the phones at Disneyland or it's in, it's in, um, it's in things like what you guys are driving at with the metagame here. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit well, about actually, the Well, actually, I, yeah. I, I want to uh, yeah. go back a second because you've given me the opportunity to uh, get all kooky and philosophize for her yeah, for a second. Go, 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 go. Um, you know, what you just described is uh, sort of a marvel of sensing. You yeah. know, if the game maker has the ability to examine the state of the world, see who's in the room and react appropriately, that's magical. And we've seen that in lots of different experiences. You know, Galaxy's Edge being a, a, you know, a perfect one. Harry Potter reacts to the presence of the wands. Sensing is very important because a system, be it a story room, a game or a robot is kind of useless if it can't perceive the world. But I think, I think what's happened in the last couple of years is, is even cooler than that, and that's extrapolation, right? And I think that uh, machine learning, TensorFlow, tools, 
if you think of, if you look up Deep Dream, right? Deep Dream, mm -hmm. uh, people remember as the thing that created these crazy hallucinogenic images uh, and animations that combined imagery from around the world. Now, what if you apply that to storytelling, right? What if you have a system that can create new stories as a function of the things it perceives? And so it's no longer the job of a creator to script every possible twist and turn, but to kind of set the ground rules and let the story, I don't want to say tell itself, because that's not fair, right. but I'm really interested in how we can use some of these machine learning and extrapolation tools to, to create story as an emergent, emergent condition yeah. of ground rules. Uh, that's something, I mean, I've been thinking, we've been having a lot of conversation this week about um, the role of the audience and about how to kind of create more, more touch points for people to to get involved in the story or like the way ARGs work and, and about the difference between scripting something and improvisation, uh, you know, sandbox type experiences for in immersive theater. I keep on coming back to, I mean, the thing, the thing I don't want to see is I don't want to see the, the human creative part of it, you know, drawn away from mm -hmm. it. And I've seen some plans sometimes, you know, when they talk about adding LARP mechanics to theme parks, trying to like drive the game master role into the computer so that mm -hmm. the the computers the computer is your friend and the computer is telling you like telling all the cast members mm -hmm. like what it is they should do and i always look at that and go like no i want the computer to be my assistant mm -hmm. i want i i would i would pay good money to sit in the game master role at disneyland like if you told me that like hey for $1000 uh, for one day you could be game master for star wars land i'd be like um yes please mm -hmm. uh, and i'm going to do that every day every birthday for the rest of my life like you know game master for the day for star wars land uh, i'm just saying guys $1000 i will pay it <laughs> i'll find a way uh, make it happen birthday's october 24th uh, every year um and <laughs> oh man, the month of October really must suck for you now. I just no, realized. <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's busy. It's just busy. It's always busy. Um, so, always so, has been. So the problem you're describing or the opportunity that you're describing is familiar to every roboticist, yeah. right? Ooh. Because robots, you can, you can imagine robots as being these independent things that march around and do stuff for you, or you can imagine them as being human enhancers. And mm. a lot of what I did as a roboticist in my, in my prior life was not creating these super intelligent devices that could go out and solve problems for you, but to make your arms stronger or to make your reach longer, right? Okay. And, and, and it's like a continuum of control. Yeah. And sometimes you let the computer do its thing, and sometimes you let the human apply the magic that only a human can apply. So, like, you know, we've, we've had these conversations this week where we're talking about things like using Twine uh, to, uh, you know, script theater pieces mm -hmm. and if you don't know what twine is it is a very simple uh kind of choose your own adventure ish uh narrative mm -hmm. uh language for scripting out narrative based uh text-based video games um as that's as i understand sam roberts is, if he listens he doesn't have time to listen to this right now because of indicate so he can't scream at me and tell me i'm wrong i've, I've used twine as an underlying tool to, uh, to prototype some of these so it's, so I'm it's explaining, true You're i'm explaining <laughs> it right yeah. good thank god um so and i'm thinking about okay so like how you you don't want to force an actor to memorize a thousand pages of scripts script because of all the different possible outcomes that might happen uh, in in a given moment that someone might do which is what if you were training an AI uh, character you would you would create you know you try and run down all those branches also 
bah, writing down all those branches is one of the things that that is difficult when scripting video games, narrative-based mm-hmm. video games, right? Sure. So you wind up with these like simpler binary choices. Mm-hmm. You come to a moment where you're, you, it's the lady or the tiger, mm-hmm. and you really want to say, but what if it was the lady and the tiger as a player, and you're you're not allowed to because the game won't. The grand thing about a role-playing That's game. Smoolian reference. Hmm? That's a Smoolian. That's a. He was a mathematician. He wrote that book, The yeah. Lady and the Tiger. Um, That's awesome. The if if you have, um, if you have. A living game master, they can give you that experience. Mm-hmm. They can run with that offer and play with you. Um, if you're in a world where you've got a lot of, or a show where you have a bunch of different actors having to try and keep it consistent, you can't really let one actor go ahead and and, and riff. Right. But if you had an underlying narrative mm-hmm. pool system that either they could pull an element out of or they could put an element into so that improvisational game kind of followed someone around, mm-hmm. right? Like suddenly you're in a zone where, oh, you 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 could do that. If, if somehow you were feeding the information, like a guest comes in, improvs a scene essentially with one of the actors, that somehow is captured, collected, dropped in. When they show up to a different actor whose character has a specific relationship to that other character, mm-hmm. And that little that the key things pop up. This person did this, that, the other thing, and there's here's this here's this bullshit story mm-hmm. we created. Like you know, boom, that would give that actor the tools to totally keep that that made up story going along. Well, I, you know, I talk about AI as being the the mechanism for creating an infinite world, but of course, humans are the best at that. Humans as improvisers uh, can do that job better than any computer ever will. And giving humans on the ground, your actors in this situation the tools and the power to do that is definitely our stepping stone, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's super important. That's, I mean, that's how you're going to get there. I, you know, I, I, I love thinking about how we can build technology tools to enable that. Like, my role in all of this, you, you said that, that sort of the nervous system of this is, is connecting all these pieces, right? I'm a tool maker, right? I, I build tools to solve problems like that. Like, how can we make sure that actor B has the latest information about what actor A improvised half a mile away mm-hmm. uh, and out of phone reach, right? How can you do that? How can you uh, build tools to, to create headwinds for, for improvisation, right? It's great to let people improv, right? But the more they improv, the more you want to push back on them, right? Yeah. And maybe it's a system that sort of understands where the story's going and, and, and sort of tries to reassert a core storyline, yeah. right? These are all these are all software problems to me, yeah. and they are all solvable software problems. And you know, building story rooms, building interactive game shows, building our metagame, which we should get to shortly, yeah. um, is sort of my opportunity to operationalize those problems. Well, let's talk the metagame. All right. Oh, Break man. it down. Metagame. Uh, well, I mean, we're, we're, we're in, we're in a, an amusement park, and most people don't realize that this amusement park in downtown LA is on the site of a horrific circus accident in the 1920s. Um, the circus duodenarius came to town. They set up their tents right here on this spot. Of course, there was nothing around here for miles. It was just farmland and scrub brush. And you know, one night uh, there was a flood, a mysterious flood, and a lightning storm, and all sorts of terrible things happened. People disappeared. There were deaths. Uh, and some say that this site is is haunted to this day. Mm. Um, and Probably helped with the it. lease. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. You get a great deal on a haunted haunted amusement park. Um, but, I mean, we see it to this day. We see weird things happening in the park all the time. 
And, uh, you know, we're going to take advantage of that. And so we give our guests here the opportunity to encounter that, that world, that hidden world. Um, and we've designed a game around it, right? We've given our guests the ability to, you know, what, what I think of as a, a scavenger hunt, only because we haven't come up with a new name to describe exactly what this is. You can walk into this park and you can buy, buy a puzzle. And, uh, you know, a long puzzle is going to cost you uh, 25 cents. A short puzzle is going to cost you a dollar, right? We want people to immerse themselves in this world. Uh, and our metagame will send you off all around the park to gather clues, to bring those clues back together, to work as a team with your friends. As you, as you go through this experience, uh, you'll... You'll go to the bar, you'll talk to a bartender, you'll talk to people at, uh, working at games, talk to people at the front desk. You'll play games, discover that there are clues hidden in those games. One of the beautiful things about not only owning an amusement park, but having developed many of the games inside of it, is man, we can put Easter eggs wherever the hell we want. And it means that we can create an expansive game that's designed to be played not only over a single visit, but over multiple visits. And um, yeah, it's it's fun. It's it's like it's like a world that we can just it's it's a rabbit hole that we can just keep digging whenever we want, you know? Nice. And I know you've you guys have woven some of this uh this into some of the pop-up experiences that have happened at the park as well. So, um <laughs> you're like all maybe. <laughs> yeah. So there's 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 hints and clues and things going on all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as 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 immersive theater nerds ourselves, um you know, everybody involved in designing this is an immersive theater nerd. Uh, if we have a if we have a if we have a hiding place, we're gonna hide something there. Yeah. You know. Yep. Eric, thank you for taking the time to to tell us about your approach to making games, about botchers, about the metagame, and uh, kind of spitballing on the future with. Oh them. man, thank you for letting me just go off and philosophize for a couple minutes. That was awesome. It's what the show is. So. <laughs> and thanks for listening, everybody. Love ya. Once again, I want to thank Eric Gradman, the mad inventor and the CTO of 2-Bit Circus, for being on the show. Check them out at 2bitcircus.com or head on down to the Big Top in the Arts District in downtown Los Angeles over there on Mateo Street and see what the hubbub is all about. Definitely check out Dr. Botcher's if you're in town. It is a joy and one of my favorite things. And on some week when there's no show open, it's going to be my pick of the week. Uh, there we go. That's how that works. Hey, um, there's there's all sorts of more stuff to come. I do have to get packing. There's probably there's already an irregular this week. There's a bonus podcast episode that we did a whole bunch of stuff on Wednesday. I got to edit some more stuff for Thursday. <sighs> Just gotta, it doesn't stop, it doesn't stop. And I'm probably gonna do a quick irregular about Vader Immortal episode two, which I played right before recording this. So um, check the feeds for that. If you're one of our Patreon backers, of course, the irregular is the $5 feed. So there you go. Uh, 
if, if, if we had magical amounts of money, uh, guys, I did not win the lottery. Once again, I, I spent two bucks, didn't win. Um, if uh, we had all the money in the world, we'd just give all this stuff away for free. But as it is, we're trying to make this go. And uh, it's not like the world isn't making it harder all the time. So if you can, patreon.com slash no proscenium, just like these wonderful folks once again, that would be Mark Balthazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Lonnie Hansen, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, and Samuel Mustry, who are sustaining backers. And the music for No Presidium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society here in L.A. Um, be nice to the staff while I'm gone. Um, if you're in Vancouver, please come say hi. I don't bite unless I'm very, very, very hungry. And then the trick is just, you know, be carrying a donut. I'm, I'm a really simple, simple animal to deal with. All right, we're going to go. This has been Noah Nelson, and until next time, I'll see you at the show. 